Well, that was a bit of a hiatus now, wasn't it? I figure it's probably been about two months since the last podcast, and reasons behind that have been, well, rather busy, but also I left a number of my recording equipment, a.k.a. my headset microphone, here in the U.S. while I was uh, traveling abroad. But we are back, and today we are going to talk about the version 1.4 changes, including card updates and erratas, so we probably have a bit of a lengthy episode today. Um, Now, unfortunately, funding for the podcast has been cut slightly because going two months without any type of sponsorship endorsement has kind of been a bit of an issue. So we're going to kind of hopefully make up to that uh, today by talking about, once again, our eternal sponsor, Totino's Pizza Rolls, available in a variety of flavors, including cheese, combination, pepperoni, triple pepperoni, sausage, supreme, triple cheese, and triple meat, featuring three different kinds of meat. I don't really care if you eat these or not. They're probably going to introduce one that's just straight fat or Crisco flavored for all I care. But they pay the bills, so you know what? Go out and buy them. They stay in business. I stay in business. So, great. Anyway, guys, let's go ahead and start talking about the 1.4 errata and FAQ changes. Give some talks about why exactly things changed and what that means for the game moving forward. I'm going to start with the rulebook errata, since that's almost its own topic. Um, There were two primary changes that happened in this version of the rules, and that was a change to timing conflicts and simultaneous actions, uh, basically removing the voluntary and mandatory wordings. So on that change, uh, that was actually something that kind of was supposed to work the way it did since day one. That was actually a very late in the game kind of editing choice that happened in the rulebook. And that's one of those tricky things is that when you make changes like that, they can have little ripple effects that you never intend to have happen. And that was a kind of a situation that happened here where you had a bunch of weird situations such as ones with um, like the Blackfish's Resolve, Stark Fury, all these passive abilities that were meant to basically stack and uh, benefit off of each other and not really interact in any way, that because of the wording of this rule, cross-reference with other specific wordings of rules, created weird interactions. And that was never the intent. Really, the whole point of that rule was to keep primarily orders and tactics cards from overlapping. So you couldn't just stack down your entire you know, tactics card hand, stack a bunch of orders, and create these giant, massive uber combos that, um, you know, of basically stacking you know, three orders in the same trigger window and, you know, creating this big chain effect. That was never the intent. Uh, so that's actually why that rule existed. But because of the way it was worded and because of some other micro interactions with things, it created this situation where you had a bunch of abilities that were by their design meant to just kind of be passively there, such as most attack abilities, um, really most anything that was not an order or tactics card uh, that's meant to supposed to just be there and trigger. Uh, those are stacking and were fine, and that's how it was during initial playtest and everything. But those were always kind of meant to stack. Um, now, when the rule was made, and it made into the final rule book, and that's how it came out, um, a lot of those effects legally didn't really stack. The thing is, that didn't really uh, hurt the game in any detriment. It did kind of take away some of these neat little mini combos. But it wasn't hurting anything specifically. So just kind of let it go as it was, because after we ran data and much more playtests to see if this is something that really needed addressing, we really felt it could have kind of gone either way. The problem is, is that you still had 
old legacy wording that was now applying to a rule that didn't really jive and mesh with it too much. So we knew we were going to have to address this eventually, but we wanted to really keep an eye on the meta and how it shaped up in these things before we made any, what we felt were kind of drastic changes. This really wasn't like a drastic change in the end, but it was still a significant enough one where it's the type of thing I would really prefer not seeing happen in the game rather than, you know, go and mess of it if it's not really being a problem. But in this specific situation here, it was one that, okay, let's go ahead and just see if we can clean this up a bit and, you know, uh, make it a little bit uh, cleaner. Because the intent was, again, you would have these little passive abilities, attack abilities, uh, attachment abilities primarily, that were supposed to just kind of always be on the unit. They weren't supposed to necessarily interact with anything else. They would trigger when they trigger. If that trigger happened to overlap with another specific timed event, such as playing a tactics card or an order, that was the type of little combo that we were fine with in the game and actually encourage. Like, for example, uh, you'll see that the Blackfish's Resolve, um, Brendan Tully's commander ability, where anytime the unit passes a morale test, they heal a wound. That is... Well, if you look at it just kind of, you know, that in meshing with his tactics card, you can see that that's supposed to be a little combo. But by the technical wording of the way those effects interacted under the 1.3 and earlier rules, you would actually have to pick which one of those would go into effect, the tactics card that you played or that passive ability. And that was never really the intent. It's not supposed to be that micromanagey. Now, I say that with the caveat, by the way, that wording is very specific and very meticulous on cards. So please... If you ever have a situation where you're trying to go rules is intended versus rules is written, go by the rules is written because, again, uh, most of that wording, unless it's specifically called out somewhere, is very meticulous. If card says it does this, assume that's what it does, no more, no less. But anyway, this timing conflicts bit was creating a lot of unforeseen ripple effects such as, okay, is cavalry a voluntary effect because it does use the word may, and if that's true, then can I not use that with cards that... Um, trigger at the start of a unit's activation because they both activate at the same time. These are those type of little things there where it's like, well, okay, if you look at it from a common sense perspective, uh, no, I'm not going to say common sense perspective because rules should never, ever be written in a common sense way. The rules should be written as this is what they say they do. This is what they do. That's the type of perspective things should be looking at. And if you look at it from the very literal perspective there, which you should be able to do, then both of those are voluntary. That means I only get to trigger one of them. Well, that doesn't feel right, but that's how they were written. So that's technically how that would have played out. So once that started developing, we knew we had to address it in some fashion. So we just changed it to specifically calling out orders and tactics cards, which again was the original intent, but kind of got muddied up a bit with wording trying to be a little fancy. So there's a little bit of backstory there to how that came about. But um, that will be a lot smoother moving forward. So that's good to see. And again, it kind of opens up the play area a bit because you have effects that previously couldn't stack that now do. Nothing major, nothing game-breaking because, you know, we already planned for these things to kind of stack. And even before we went into this 1.4 update, we did a full scan over pretty much every combination we could just to see if there was going to be any weird interactions that cropped up because of this. But, you know, nothing came up. So very pleased to say that and, you know, uh, happy how that turned out. The next big change that happened in 1.4 was the changing of terrain keywords. So I could do a full episode just talking about terrain and its impact because it's a really important piece of the game. But the important thing that I really want to stress when it comes to terrain that I need, I want to see people utilizing more is the fact that 
we have the terrain that's posted in the rulebook. Those are set examples of each of the terrain pieces. But keep in mind that by the rules, you assign keywords to terrain before the game that you and your opponent agree upon. This is something a lot of people overlook because they think that the rulebook is this Bible that is set. This is what terrain always does. And it's a good standard to follow, but it is not the rule. For example, I can create a hedge that has horrific. I don't know, maybe it's full of skulls or, you know, it grows faces or something. But that's something I can decide that it does. If I want just a specific set of keywords on a specific set of terrain, um, then I can assign that before the game goes as long as my opponent agrees to it. This is going to become more relevant as time goes on and people start making custom terrain or other pieces of terrain start showing up, etc., etc. So if you look at the terrain keywords as a set of mechanics to apply to a piece of terrain, that's really how they're supposed to be used. And that's not only just for you know official play, but also for like homemade custom making terrain and everything. And also noting that you can make up your own keywords, like if you wanted to have, I don't know, linked so you want to string a bunch of like key, uh, sorry, uh, terrain pieces together or something. I don't know. You can make up whatever keywords you want. Like say you wanted to make a keyword that said, um, you know, disruptive or something. That okay, a unit that's on this terrain piece can't use orders and can't be the target of tactics cards. I don't know how you'd go about justifying that, you know, like you know, visually, but that's something you can do. But the point is, is that with terrain keywords, it's supposed to be this kind of sandbox toolkit for you to use to make your own cool pieces of terrain also utilizing the ones that we give standard in the rulebook as a baseline template. The issue was that uh, a lot of the terrain in there, while neat, was not utilized as much as the rest, specifically ones that had the destructible keyword. And the reasoning behind that was because, okay, you move over it and it's gone. So it has a one-time-per-game impact, and that's it. And frankly, the terrain, while we don't do a heavy, dense table like some games, it should be enough where it impacts things because especially in these like rank and file fantasy game settings or even you know whatever other type of non-fantasy settings you have terrain should matter and i'm a big advocate that in any type of uh miniature game terrain should play an important role because it's one of the coolest elements that we have to this hobby uh you can play playing on a big blank table is not any fun the different terrain elements are really what's going to be a super deep layer of the game tactics strategy battle plans you know when they tie along with the army that you bring and the game modes that you're playing these are all big things that are layering together to create this grand experience and i am a big advocate that terrain is very important for these styles of games the issue was that we didn't want to have a big dense table because this is rank and file uh we have movement trays so you have to kind of be a little precarious about how you utilize it because unlike a skirmish game you have these trays to move around so you don't have the sheer just like openness that you have like back when i was doing dark age of wrath of kings which are skirmish games you can pack the board down terrain and because you're moving individual models on bases you can work around that here you have trays so that has to be taken into consideration that was kind of the reason the original destructible keyword existed the problem is is that it makes the terrain a little bit boring and not really have such a huge impact because okay i'm gonna take stakes i run through it i take d3 plus one wounds and then it's gone i don't have to worry about it anymore
Now that the destructible keyword has changed so that you actually have to devote resources to getting rid of it, those pieces of terrain stay in play and can have a perpetual impact on the game. You can actually garrison behind a low wall, and now if an opponent charges you, they're going to be sitting on top of it. And now it's going to be impacting them constantly. Stakes, the same thing. You can take a range unit, let's say Lannister Crossbowmen, for example, stick them behind a stake pile, and now an opponent charges them, they're going to take that initial D3 plus 1 hits. Under the old rules, okay, that's going to suck, they're going to take that, but then they're just going to wipe out your crossbowmen because now you're engaged in melee. Now, the crossbowmen can actually fight in melee, and then if the opponent attacks them back, they're going to take another D3 plus 1 wounds because they're fighting on top of stakes. Really, that situation, the smarter thing to have done would have been to retreat with the crossbowmen because then the opponent not only takes those wounds for charging, but also could perpetually fail. Anyway, you're getting into strategy and tactics talk at that point. Um, the point is that a lot of these terrain pieces that destructible were not being taken as much as terrain pieces that did not have destructible, specifically because they didn't have as grand an impact. So that was the primary change for that. Um, and then we had Palisades, which were another you know commonly taken terrain piece. They actually gained the destructible keyword in the terrain examples, which, noting, by the way, you could have assigned it to them before, but uh, that really would have made a lot of sense. Um, they were... They're a tricky terrain piece because a lot of people viewed them as overly oppressive, and I will say they're one of the more strategic ones that if you place down could have a greater impact. Um, I do feel that they're a lot more prominence given to what-if scenarios utilizing that terrain piece than actual um, seeing this run uh, examples. That's always a tricky thing when it comes to erratas and FAQs because you know, you're never going to be able to you know, please every player. And a lot of the problems that arise is you have to analyze, is this actually a problem or is, is, eh, or is it a perception issue among players? Because if it's a perception issue among players, those are their own set of um, issues. Because if you fix them, you might be fixing something that is not a problem to begin with and involuntarily hurting something as a result versus this is an actual big enough issue that it warrants changing. Uh, for example, like when the game first came out, if you listen to the player base constantly when they were just playing the starter set, holy hell, Cersei is overpowered and absolutely needs a nerf and is broken beyond all hell. And if you look at you know tournament statistics and everything, okay, she's utilized, but she's not taken in a lot of lists. Um, same thing there with, like again, going to another example here of when the starter box came out, depending on... Uh, <laughs> the player base, the day of the week, the way the alignment of the moon, either Starks were vastly overpowered or Lannisters were vastly overpowered. Meanwhile, though, if you look at tournament statistics that were coming in for competitive events and things like that, then you would see that Starks and Lannisters were sitting at around the same average win-loss ratio. At the time, it was sitting something around like 50, I think the highest was 58% in favor of Starks, which was the opposite of what the internet would have you believe, to Lannisters. So, okay, if you listen to the in that situation, you're like, oh, okay, well, we need to buff Starks in some way. Then you're going to buff the the army that's already winning the most tournaments. You know, you see, that's where it comes down to a matter of perception, chatter versus statistics and things actually, you know, playing out. As not to say that player perception is not an important thing. It's just a matter of delicate balancing. Is this something to act on or is this just something that people kind of have to deal with for the sake of the game? That's going to come into play in a bit when we're talking about card balancing, by the way, so that's why I bring that up. 
But anyway, back to talking about the terrain. So we did modify some of the keywords around to give some of the lesser used pieces, such as low walls and hedges, a bit of a buff. And, uh, you know, basically in an effort to see more of those being used, because frankly, as far as the terrain was coming into play, it was mainly like corpse piles, bogs, palisades, um, things of that nature. So this was an effort to make the terrain a little bit more diverse, play with the keywords a bit, and, you know, just uh, shape up that a bit. Because, again, I'm a big fan of terrain in games. I think they need to impact things. And the oh, it, a lot of this I know I'm focusing on the old destructible keyword, but it's kind of the prime example of the reasoning why a lot of this was changed. Is because terrain needs to have a bigger impact uh, than it was giving. And you could look at it and see the terrain pieces that were destructible were almost never taken specifically because they wouldn't have a big impact. They were just kind of utilized once, and then they were done. So they went away. Uh, and that's really what happened there. So I'm actually a lot happier with the changes that have happened with the new train pieces. I think that's going to open up some diversity that you'll see across the table and how things play out there. So let's move on to the faction FAQs now and talk about really what kind of change there. I'm going to save, again, the actual uh, attachment and card changes to the end. This is just going to be talking about the general FAQ and things. With Starks, there wasn't really a lot that changed. I mean, I really feel at this point we're kind of hammering out most any of the frequently asked questions that come up with Starks and Lannisters and Neutrals. They've kind of already been covered, so you're not really going to see that many pop up. We did add one here with Roger Cassil, Combat Veteran. The question did come up enough whether the wording on his card refer was referencing... Um, you as in the player claiming the zone or as you the owner of Roderick when he activates claiming the zone and yeah that's a situation where the wording could have been better but clarified that it has to be Roderick when he takes the zone I mean if wording were perfect we would have a blank FAQ page so you know that's why that comes up there past that that's the only change there Lannisters by and by have not had a lot of questions that come up so you know, happy to see that. Really, overall, the Stark FAQ and the Lannister FAQ and the neutral one, uh, to a lesser extent, um, don't really have a lot of questions that, you know, the wording is the cause of the problem. Roger Casillo there, I'll say the wording could have been better, but most of the FAQ questions are really just because they have very specific interactions or intricacies in the rules that players tend to overlook or miss, and it's easy just to throw this question up in an FAQ even if it is answered by the core rulebook and just reading the relevant sections. But, you know, that's why we have a really quick FAQ here. Going with the Night's Watch, um, they didn't get anything added in here as well, namely because they haven't really had a lot of newer stuff coming out since the version 1.3 updates. So there really wasn't a lot to cover there. With the Free Folk, we added in the one question about the Giants and Mighty Swing that comes up. And that is actually a very good situation there to look at when you're talking about the wording matters on the card very precisely of what it says oh with mighty swing talking about generated hits people keep asking okay well what about blocked hits what about non-blocked hits this is actually if you look under the um attack operations in the rule book how you resolve an attack it talks about unblocked hits that convert to wounds and blocked hits and unblocked and all those terms but I understand that if you don't read those sections, read them carefully, this question can become very, you know, like tricky. Like, okay, um, what about blocked hits? Are they negated or canceled? Well, no, the rules don't say they are. But this is a situation where, like, okay, your baseline understanding can lead you to that conclusion. Uh, but again, that's why it's a frequently asked question bit right there. 
Okay, so now that that's being covered, let's get into the actual card updates and what they mean for the game. So as I, I'm not going to recap basically the whole conversation I gave at CMON Expo. You can go and watch that video again if you want. I'm just going to talk about the short and sweet here. The whole point of this is that we want every unit attachment and every asset of the game to be viable. If a player wants to take something, they should be able to take it without just being laughed off the table. Like, ha ha oh, you like Umber Champions? They are garbage. You only run them if you're an idiot. Never want anything like that. So this was the first round we were doing since we had enough data to compile all this with Starks and Lannisters and to a lesser extent neutrals um, to go, okay, this is how the metas have been shaping up. This is how things are interacting with each other. Um, let's see what is not performing up to standard. So the thing about this is that you can play test things forever, but once something reaches in the wild, you are going to collect more data from that than anything that you could possibly be doing internally. One of my uh, best examples for that is actually Riot Games. So League of Legends, the biggest video game on the planet. Riot Games is a billion dollar company with a B on a free to play game. They do patches every month, a minor patch and a major patch. They have gone on record as stating that regardless of the amount of internal playtesting they do, they gain more data from the first 48 hours of their patches going on the live server than anything else combined, which is why that they will actually have, you know, well, constant patches for one, but micro fixes after those patches are released. That's why they move to a large patch format and then a minor patch two weeks after that. Um, and that's true. I mean, of anything, you're going to get more data when something is out in the wild and being play tested than anything else. And that's where it's going to come back into play with that whole perception versus reality situation as well, that you have a very thin line as a uh, designer and developer, especially developer, uh, that you have to walk to make sure that you're not fixing a problem that doesn't actually exist. Um, there's a lot of times where something will come out and people will go, holy crap, that is drastically overpowered. Man, you're going to see that everywhere. And then it actually doesn't happen. You see this all the time with like Magic the Gathering. If, you, if you're any of those players, you'll see like the previews for a set come out. People will cry a card's busted or overpowered. Then the actual meta will develop based around that set and no one takes it. I mean, that's speculation and that's how that works. I mean, that's been going on in every game that's ever existed. In specifically uh, A Song of Ice and Fire here, we were more interested in bringing things that are not to par up to par with everything else. If there is something that was drastically overpowered that we were seeing constantly in competitive play that just seems like it's absolutely dominating, yes, we would absolutely take a look at something like that and seeing about bringing it uh, downward in line, like nerfing it, uh, to levels that it needs to be. Now, luckily, we have not found anything that is actually to that oppressive level. I know that people are going to immediately go like, well, but what about Varus? You nerfed him. I actually did talk about him in a previous podcast that um, he kind of got nerfed uh, sort of in a... Okay, well, can't say sort of. Uh, by definition, the changing of his card was a straight nerf. But he was nerfed not for power level reasons. I actually didn't have a problem where he was as far as power level go. I just feel that he was not being utilized in the proper way. Being able to re-roll um, the die on his effect to basically make it so you, you know, okay, you roll die on a 3+, plus, you cancel the ability, you can expend another token to retry it. 
that was making it too much of a non-thinking situation where if your opponent made a big play, you would just burn all the tokens on that one big play and people were kind of just holding on to him until that happened instead of uh, spreading his effect across the board, making it one where you actually had to think when you were going to use it. So like, okay, there's a chance here, 33% chance that this effect will actually fail. Is this worth one of my tokens? I can't just spend them whenever I feel like it or worse yet, hold them out for that one big play that I can absolutely make sure I shut down. Now, I'm not going to get into the specifics of your entire battle plan should not rely on one big play anyway, much less when your opponent has Varus and you know it. But that's a conversation for another day, and I've talked about that in the past. Um, the Varus change was specifically to avoid that type of, like, let's say, bomb play, where you were just holding everything with him until you're ready to just blow everything out and cancel this one effect. This is meant to be much more of a spread across kind of subtle manipulation style thing across multiple effects across the game, both to discourage the Varus player from doing the big bomb, but also to discourage um, the opponents and general players of the game from hinging all of their uh, battle plan on one big play. That really should not be how games are determined. You know, you shouldn't be... Uh, swinging the game and like, oh, I'm going to save it all for my one big master play, and if that works, I'm going to win, and if it doesn't, I'm going to lose. That's not healthy gameplay, so that's really it's not something you should encourage. And so, you know, Varus, the change there was going to be the case for that. So I guess we kind of involuntarily just talked about the neutral changes, which again are older ones and I've covered in podcasts previously. So let's get on to more of the actual unit, uh, sorry, uh, unit and attachment changes. I keep saying unit, but these were all specifically attachments and they were all NCUs and those type of changes. So when we were doing this, we were doing things in waves. We wanted to start with the neutrals, the Starks, and the Lannisters because they have enough raw data out there, um, seeing as how they've been the oldest factions in the game is about for roughly a year at this point. Uh, to say, okay, these are the things that we're not seeing in lists, these are the things that are underperforming, and then get enough testing data in to go, okay, if we change it, these are the effects that's going to happen, and this is what's going to be a result of that. So this is also why you don't see any Night's Watch or Free Folk things, because frankly, both those armies are still too um, underdeveloped as far as the live meta goes with the player base, because, for example, you don't have all their units. Uh, well, Starks and Lannisters, you don't have all their units either, because, of course, there's more stuff going to come out. But you don't have a big enough window into those factions to show the diversity that is really going to be out there. So an attachment that you know people say are underperforming now, or you don't really see too much, like Commander or whatever people aren't taking, there's going to be more stuff that comes out that you need to see how meshes of that because things can shift really, really quickly. And things that were not taken before now click into place and are like, holy crap, this is a busted unit here. You know, holy crap. And, you know, the Internet's going to freak out about it. So getting that full picture there is really important as well. Plus, again, those factions are just fairly new. People are learning how to play them. And, you know, that stuff is settling in. With the Starks and Lannisters, they've been out long enough where we can see the hard math and actually hard results here of you know what people are taking, what they are not taking, and more importantly, why that is. If things aren't being taken just because, okay, they don't mesh well with current stuff that's out there, but we internally know, okay, well, this is going to get released and it's going to shake things up, that's different. We need to wait on data. But here, it was a situation of these are things that... Um, basically we're going to continue to be what they were 
and they were not performing to the level they were. So then it comes to the question of like, okay, how are we going to handle these things moving forward? Well, we've got a really cool app. We can keep things updated there. Some companies have moved to just using entirely digital and don't even have physical cards anymore. That's not a direction we wanted to take, but we have an app. We might as well utilize it for the greater good here and give people the option to print out these cards. Frankly, the mentality was we would rather have everything be usable and buff it up rather than just having these dead units. Are people, is everyone going to be satisfied? No. Are some people going to go, well, I don't like using apps and I don't like having to, you know, print out new cards for my stuff. That's a valid concern. I mean, I can't argue that. But I would much rather that be your problem rather than I've got units and attachments and stuff that I want to take, but I can't because it's just not good. That's a bigger problem to me. So it's a matter of lesser of two evils here. And frankly, I think the majority of the player base would rather have more cool stuff that is usable and have more options rather than be inconvenienced with having to print out stuff or use the app. So, you know, can't please everyone. That's the decision that we came to that we figured was best for the game. And I stick by that as well. So that's the reasoning behind these changes. And let's go into the actual changes here. <laughs> this was kind of one of those awkward announcements when we were talking about this, because when you look at the Starks versus Lannisters, the Starks got all of, all of one update. Lannisters, meanwhile, got five. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it means that we really, really tried to find stuff with the Starks that was like, okay, what's underperforming here? What can we buff if there's anything that needs to be buffed? And we immediately knew, like, the Umber Champion, because we just never see him played. And it was also a matter of, we understand why we never see he's never played. And, okay, uh, how can we improve him? But then we looked at everything else in the Starks, and it was like, everything here is played, everything here is good, or has a use. Or, even if it seems like it's a little on the lower end of the curve, it's going to have a use. Because the thing is, regardless of how much you want to balance things, something's always going to be the best, something's always going to be the worst. That's just how scales work. Granted, that margin should be as small as you can possibly make it, but it's always going to exist. And of course, so you can reach that perfect balance point where things are in a case-by-case, scenario-by-scenario basis of, you know, this is the best in this scenario, this is the best in this scenario. That's where you really want to be. But it's really hard to get things subjectively like that because people like definites. They're going to always want to go, this is the best, this is the worst, and there's never any in between. I mean, come on, that's how the internet works. <laughs> but, all right, so with the Umber Champion, he had this really neat effect that whereas the units started losing ranks, they would gain more abilities. The issue with that is that they're, and that's a general theme of the Starks, the thing is with that is that you are stacking an uncontrolled variable on top of your unit. What that means is that you're giving them cool abilities, but they were nothing that the player could directly control. And that's the thing about these attachments is that they are an investment that I'm making. They are points that I'm spending. And this is something that I had no direct control over when it was happening. And that was kind of the issue with the Umber Champion. It's like, yeah, it was really powerful and it opened up this um, kind of uh, panic-inducing playstyle to the Starks. But it created a playstyle based around that that the Stark player themselves actively had no real control over, because it required the opponent to hit your opponent, uh, sorry, hit your unit in such a way that they were damaged but not outright killed, and then you would potentially gain these cool effects versus just paying points for a definite effect that was going to happen. Um, that was the issue. So Fury Unleashed got changed from 
when you lose a rank, you gain Vicious, and then if you're on your last rank, the opponent becomes panicked as well, to now when you make a melee attack, you can get plus two dice <coughs> and gain Vicious for the trade-off of suffering D3 wounds after the attack has been completed. This is a very powerful effect, and also one that we knew that people were going to see on paper and freak out about, and I'm actually proud to say that the reaction to this was not as, oh my god, as I thought it was going to be. Uh, I still saw a little bit of that where people were like, this thing's busted. Um, I expected to see a lot more of that because this is a very powerful effect. Anything that adds attack dice is very heavily monitored because those can create some nasty swings when they're applied to different units. Uh, this one here had the trade-off, though, of your suffering D3 wounds in that case, which is funny because if you ever have effects that deal D3 wounds, people love to say, oh my god, that's super powerful. If you ever have effects that you suffer d3 wounds people kind of uh, sorry i spoke that in reverse when you have effects that deal d3 wounds usually the player base is kind of like oh that's kind of so so d3 plus one people freak out about but if it's d3 they always kind of go meh it's whatever but if you ever suffer d3 wounds as a result of gaining another cool effect people talk about how that can absolutely just cripple your unit so they they don't view it as very powerful when you're dealing it to the opponent but they view it as immensely damaging when you are suffering them um but that's one of those things that the math actually comes out for. So plus two attack dice on average is going to equal plus one actual total hits, which is a nice bonus. And it can change based on the unit. You know, you can have a three plus to hit or, God forbid, a two plus to hit or even rerolls in some situations. And that's going to matter a lot more. Gaining Vicious is super nice as well. That doesn't stack or, uh, sorry, synergize very much with a lot of the Stark tactics as they exist currently. But it opens up a lot of uh, player uh list building varieties obviously you stick this guy up umber berserkers and you're gonna have a nasty ass eight point unit that's potentially rolling up to 12 dice with vicious and sundering it gets really nasty go figure this guy synergizes well with the umbers and you can stick this guy into a unit of stark sworn swords and for six points you have the ultimate kamikaze unit here which is going to be hitting at a three plus eight uh potentially up to ten dice with vicious and critical blow uh on their attack for six points yeah, you're going to take 2d3 wounds after that, but okay, so what? You get down to your last rank there and everything, and you can really cause some mayhem there. Uh, so, you know, that opened up a fun little playstyle. I think that this guy looks immensely powerful on paper. If you're in other factions, well, that's something else to note, is that attachments are balanced to the faction they're in. So cross-referencing, like, oh, well, if I had an Umber Champion in a unit of Halberdiers or, you know, um, Night's Watch, yeah, that would be busted, but I don't really see that many... Uh, Night's Watch armies running armored champions, and there's a reason for that. So, you know, this is, I really like the way this guy plays now. He really can lead to that whole fully aggressive berserker, go figure, aggressive style that the Starks, you know, can uh, fashion themselves after. And I think it's, you know, it's just a fun little change. Getting to the Lannisters. Okay, so they had a significant number of changes in my mind, which is five attachments, NCUs, commanders that got affected. And. That's really a large number. It's more than I really want to see. Um, now, some of these changes were minor, but five is still a lot. I mean, in an ideal world, you don't have any. So to me, seeing five is, it's a lot. People can feel that way however they want, you know, whether they're like, oh, that's nothing, because technically we're talking about five out of a potential 40 plus different attachments, commanders, units. Eh, it's still more than I want to see, but that's might be maybe just being a little um, self-judgy in the situation. So we had a... The changes here are 
to first off Jamie Lannister, the Kingslayer commander. Um, he just was not performing to the level that he needed to. Um, he should kind of be your punished, uh, being punished for failing style commander. Uh, he should also be defensive and have a lot of those type of effects. Now, going into these unit changes and balances, we specifically didn't want to change any type of tactics cards or anything that would go into a deck that needed shuffling, because when you start changing those around, that creates a much different medium than changing a card that is static, that is a reference point for things. So attachment cards, unit cards, um, NCUs. Those are static things on the battlefield. You can print them out and leave them there. They don't really have to be moved around. Or you can just bring them up in the app and go like, hey, this is what this guy does. Uh, tactics cards are a different thing because they go into a deck. They need to be shuffled. So that was something we didn't really want to change was tactics cards. Luckily, again, um, there wasn't any that really we looked at and went, man, this is grossly overpowered or underpowered or anything here. You know, there are some that are better than others, but that's just the nature of commanders and also their tactics cards. Um, some are situationally better than others, but they've all been tested and balanced to a very extensive degree. Like the hero boxes and commanders and everything um, receive more extensive playtesting than any other facet because of the nature and impact they can have across the board. That's not to say units are not playtested extensively as well, but obviously, you know, a commander that is going to drastically shape the way your army plays and interact with every single element of it is going to require a lot more, you know, time and testing than say, you know, a single unit. So, but that was going into it. Something we didn't want to mess with was tactics cards. So Jamie here, we knew we wanted to give him a little buff because he just was underperforming. So we gave him his order, Kingslayer's Prowess. When a friendly unit within short range is attacked with melee after the attack dice are rolled, the unit gets plus one to defense save rolls for that attack. Basically, it gives him a walking um, wealth of the rock for short range. And uh, kind of encompassing the fact that Jamie is this, to the Lannister army, he is the inspiring figure. Soldiers want to be him. You know, they think that he is invincible in combat. And frankly, when on one-on-one -on -one fights, he kind of is. He, he's basically a walking Terminator, which is why they had cut off his hands. Uh, spoilers, by the way. But, uh, so, we felt this was really fitting, and it's nice across the board, because he is supposed to be a defensive-style commander in this form. You stick him in a unit of Lannister Guardsmen, all of a sudden you have a unit that can now get 2-plus save. You stick him in Halberdiers, and now they become the equivalent of Guardsmen. Mountainsmen, same thing. So, you know, and this is to any unit within short range, so it doesn't even have to be his, but you're going to specifically kind of usually gravitate toward the one that he is sitting in. But now you're kind of further rewarded for those defensive units because, again, you can stick him in a unit of guardsmen, rock that um, uh, two-plus save right here, and he can just get really nasty in combination with some of his other effects and whatnot. Um, so that was the buff that we gave to him. Now, looking at the opposite side of that coin in the starter, just keeping in thing with the starter box right here, uh, Gregor Clegane, Lord Tywin's Mad Dog. This was a three-point attachment, and I remember distinctly, uh, back during playtesting, this guy kept fluxing between two points and three points, because he has a super, super, super nasty effect in Inhuman Strength, that is the unit's melee attacks roll plus two dice and gain Sundering. Giving additional attack dice is something that is always very hesitant on, because that's directly and proportionally increasing the kill quality and count that the unit is capable of doing. You give a unit plus one to hit, it can still only kill a maximum number equal to its attack dice. You give it 
plus two, plus four additional attack dice, that's directly upping the amount of casualties that it can, you know, theoretically cap out at. So giving additional dice is always something we're very hesitant about. Now, in this situation here, he had that effect, so we gave him a negative, which is uncontrolled rage, which was when he activated, if he could charge, he had to. Now, this harkens back to a lot of uh, units in older games and other systems that might have uh, berserk rules or you know some variation thereof where they would have to charge or have to attack the nearest enemy. It can be a very oppressive mechanic to have on units, and usually it's a balancing fact for a big benefit. Now, plus, plus two dice and sundering is a big benefit. The issue in this situation here is that you are also creating a unit that was by its nature very expensive because you were getting a three-point attachment. And on top of that, you are also having a situation where you could then not control what that unit did. So that was a bit of a problem. Um, we changed that to where the unit has to make a morale test now, and if they pass, they don't have to uh, activate that effect. They can do whatever they need to. The thing is, is that morale is not one of the Lannister army's strong suits. So... That was kind of a problem going into there as well. That was the mechanic that we wanted to use. Okay, they're going to have to test to basically restrain themselves. The problem again, though, is you're dealing with you're putting that effect into an army that, by its nature, does not have the best morale. So you're effectively taking it from a definite I have to charge to, on average, a 50% chance that I'm going to have to charge, which is still not really good from a tactical perspective. So we gave it a little bit of a further buff here, where if you fail. Now it's actually a benefit, where you're going to at least roll a 6 for that charge, meaning that you can't fail. Because if you could declare that charge, obviously you could have, you had to have been able to succeed in the first place, so the 6 is going to make that happen. So this means that this effect, technically, is a straight benefit, as long as you are not camping Gregor's unit on an objective in some capacity. Uh, which, frankly, is not really what you should be doing with this unit. Now... This had the effect of making this guy an absolute beast. But the thing is, we felt that that was fine because he is a big, expensive three-point attachment. You were investing a lot of points into making that happen. I mean, that's almost half the cost of a unit there. You know, for two more points, you can find somewhere you can get a full another unit of guardsmen. And it's really hard to argue those things. So when you start getting into those costs of something being like three points, it's got to be a really cool, strong effect. And Gregor is now definitely in that category. Um... Coincidentally enough, he synergizes really well with the Mountainsmen now because he's going to give that unit, uh, the unit already has Vicious and Critical Blow, and now they're going to get Sundering plus two additional dice and become Charging Monsters. He's also super nasty to put in Halberds, although you are wasting the Sundering, but hell, he even makes Guardsmen, you know, really nasty. And actually some other upcoming options he will make even scarier as well um again this is kind of peeking into that whole i know what's coming up and you guys don't so i can already think of the other units that he is just gonna be nasty in and actually when we start thinking about neutral units as well he becomes a really big tasty choice but anyway so yeah with gregor here for right now when you're running lannisters i mean he is going to go fantastic um sitting in the mountainsmen as he should uh i'll go ahead and give a minor spoiler here as well he's probably gonna be a very prime choice for the stormcrow mercenaries when they come out because they're gonna really enjoy the effects that he can bring as well uh but let's move on uh talking about Tyrion lannister the giant of lannister this was a guy that i really enjoyed but i also have never seen in a list ever um 
And that's mainly because people like his commander version or his NCU version. This is kind of one of the issues when you have a character that is very popular and has multiple versions. There's always going to be one version that just is at the bottom of the list because there's so many other versions to take. And that's unfortunately because George R. R. Martin has written a lot of fantastic characters that go through these grandiose narrative arcs that really make them cool and dynamic. So you've got, you know, Battlefield Tyrion, you've got NCU Tyrion, you've got Commander Tyrion. You know, and you're going to have more versions of Tyrion as time goes on, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, you're just going to have to go like, oh, I've got six cool versions of Tyrion to pick from. Three of them are probably going to be the top tier, and three of them are going to be the bottom tier. Because, again, that's just how things work. So we are trying to avoid things like that. So, you know, even if a character is immensely popular and goes through multiple versions, Jamie, for example, you know, you're going to want to make each of those a tasty choice. But in the case of Tyrion here, his three-point attachment was definitely the lowest tier. And that was because while he had a lot of cool effects, they were very restricted in when they could be utilized. So adaptive planning, which is the ability he has where he's engaged, he can replace a condition token with any other type. That's a nice ability. That is not a reason why I take him as an attachment, though. That's kind of a secondary benefit ability. His main effect was that counter strategy he had where he could straight up shut down tactics cards on the unit he was engaged with. That's pri the primary reason you would take him is for that effect. Adaptive planning, the condition token swapping, was kind of what I would refer to as a secondary benefit. Like if you just gave him counter strategy, he would be fine. He wouldn't be anything more than like probably a one point attachment there, but he would be fine. So what we did with counter strategy is we increased it to be a bubble radius around him in short range, which now makes him much more of a battlefield control piece, which fits in more with the playstyle of the Lannister army. Uh, it also opens up to the fact that now his effect is actually going to have an impact on the battlefield versus requiring a ton of setup for potentially minimal payout. You're still going to have to get him up in the thick of things, but the effect of just having a counter uh, counterplot just kind of in your hand is very powerful. It's something the opponent can't ignore. And now it's sitting in this six-inch radius bubble across the battlefield here, which is actually bigger than, than six-inch radius because you're measuring from any point of the unit that he's in, not the center. So it actually does extend out a little bit further than that. Well, actually, not a little bit further, a substantial amount further. But point is, is that now he's a walking denial bubble. He's not something your opponent can just ignore by not engaging with. And that's something that actually now warrants that three points. So that's a. I think you'll be seeing him pop up a lot more in heavy Lannister control lists. Uh, I still think that he's one of the best commanders for that reason. But if you wanted to stack like a hyper-aggressive mountain list and then still have those Lannister elements of control, Tyrion makes a good addition to that army. All right, moving on to Tywin Lannister. Tywin might be one of my favorite NCUs in the game, and he's actually one of the ones that I run personally a lot when I'm playing Lannisters or um, really more Bolton Lannisters because that's kind of more my play style. I really like his once-per-game bomb. The thing, though, is that he is what you would... He's one of those tricky units because if you utilize him properly, he was very, very oppressive. But... Your opponent had to have a good target for him. Making something panicked, vulnerable, weakened, almost any unit, that's going to be really, really nasty. Okay, Shutting off their attachments, though, that's a little situational because, say, your opponent's not running many attachments or the unit that you really want to shut down doesn't have any attached to them to begin with. Basically, it created this situation where Tywin was 
effective, but never there was never a really good target for his effectiveness because you would either usually target a big expensive unit that usually had a bunch of cool abilities on them already and probably minimal attachments because if I have an eight point unit, I'm very hesitant to stick more attachments on there. So you would target a unit, they would you would make them panicked, vulnerable, weakened, which hurt them. And then you probably would turn off their attachments, maybe if they had one, but they would still have these really cool abilities of their own. Or conversely, you would target a cheap unit that probably had an attachment, make them panic, vulnerable, weakened, and then show off their cool attachment. The problem then is that they usually didn't have many abilities that you really cared about shutting off. So, sorry, I mean, uh, they didn't have many abilities on the unit. So therefore the panicked, vulnerable, and weakened was kind of just kind of kicking a puppy while it was down. Like this thing probably can't deal me uh, that much damage to warrant the sheer blow that I'm dealing to it with the panicked, vulnerable, and weakened. So the situation came up where Tywin, while the effect is really cool, the specific target that he wanted to hit with this didn't really exist in the game as it currently is. So we added in the ability to of his effect that the unit as well as their attachment, they all just straight up blank out. They all lose their abilities. Now every unit in the game is a good target for him. Obviously if you have an expensive unit with attachments on it, that is the prime target for Tywin. But even if it's one of those mid-range units that just is nasty on its own, shutting off all those abilities for the round is going to just devastate it. Your opponent's running a unit of Lannister Knights. Um, sorry, Knights of Casterly Rock. Okay, you're going to throw Tywin down on them. That's going to turn them into being panicked, vulnerable, weakened. That's going to hurt them immensely. But then you're going to shut off their abilities for the turn. So like their Lance is going to lose something and they're more, most powerful on the charge. That's going to really, really hurt them. Let's say we take another big expensive unit, the Flayed Men. Okay, they never had to worry about attachments to begin with. Sure, you might stick a Mounted Gregor with them, but then you have a 13-point unit that, again, you're kind of only so-so hurting. Now, Tywin is going to give you a really key ability to just hurt them really badly for a turn. Because now, when they come in to swing on you, you can hit them with Reigns of Castamir. They're going to become weakened and lose all the abilities for that attack. And then when you swing back on them, they're going to become vulnerable and panicked. That is a devastating effect. Uh, one-two punch for a big expensive unit. And that is really the idea behind Tywin, is that he should really create this big one-two punch scenario where ideally you play it when they're going to attack you and they're going to lose all their cool abilities, they're going to become weakened, so the damage is going to be almost entirely mitigated. And then you punch them back uh, with that panicked and that weakened token. Or conversely, you lead the alpha strike, you hit them really hard with panicked or vulnerable, and if they're defensive units, you hit them so they lose all their abilities as well. Like, let's say you had a uh, a unit of Faith Mill, sorry, uh, Warrior Sons with Barristan Selmy attached, okay? A uh, big, expensive 11-point unit that's basically unkillable because of the Faith tokens mixed in with Barristan's ability there. Um, you hit them on the offense and they lose all their abilities. They lose all that healing capability that they have. They lose, you know, any abilities to gain faith tokens or expend faith tokens that they had that's going to really hurt them there and yeah the panic they don't care about so much the vulnerable they absolutely will care about then when they come back to swing on you the weakened is really going to you know hurt them there because all their defensive all their abilities were defensive nature so tywin's going to give you that one two punch and now really feels more like you know plays like he should and then we have probably the biggest single change at least in my mind which was sandor clegane that is a little sad because Sandor is one of my favorite characters in the books as well. And 
we really wanted him to be really cool, and he turned out to be one of those guys that you didn't really take outside of just sticking in a unit of halberdiers. <laughs> and the issue of Sandor is that uh, his effect in almost any other army would be absolutely just, yes, I'm taking this every chance I get. Coincidentally enough, his effect kind of moved over to the Umber Champion and the Starks, but that's a an example right there. The Lannisters, though, couldn't really make the best use of what he was bringing to the table. So his old effect was that you could get plus one to hit and gain vicious with the expense of taking some wounds. The Lannisters, by their nature, are a defensive kind of attritiony little army um, with counterplay elements and you know uh, that type of manipulation. So here you had an effect that was purely aggressive that was going to also cause you self-inflicted wounds. So nothing there really played into the Lannister playstyle. Yes, you can sit there and say, like, Gregor is all about flipping the um, Lannister playstyle on its head when you're running him as commander, so you're running hyper-aggressive, so Sandor fits in with that plan really well. The problem is that that means that outside of just tagging along with his big brother, um, Sandor doesn't really have a role in the army, and that's kind of a problem is that we don't want anything that's only good in a very specific build. Well, outside of a commander, because you only have one of them. You know, I shouldn't only run this one guy if I'm doing this other thing, because that's kind of lame. Especially when it comes to such a cool guy like Sandor. So, he went through a lot of revisions when we were rebalancing these things to see exactly what we could give him. Uh, we had kept him with variations of Hound's Fury and just changed it to do other things and just keep the aggressive tone. But it really came down to the fact that at the end of the day, we were still adding in a very combat and very aggressive, uh, aggressive aggression-focused unit attachment into an army that didn't really play that style. So that was, once we came to that conclusion, that was the overarching thing, and we kind of took him back to the table and thought about, okay, what can we give him? Because one of the other things is we didn't want to go messing with points cost at this time, even though we really could have. We really wanted to, like, stick keep things at the same points they were not so much from a balance perspective because if we wanted to say move sandor to be one point or three point we really wouldn't have any problem doing that it was mainly the fact that with the general flow of the cost of attachments in the armies that's more so the balance we wanted to keep versus any specific attachment so an army should have a set kind of roundabout number of one-point attachments two-point attachments and three-point attachments and kind of follow a little bit of curve of options there so we didn't want to move his points around, so we wanted to give him something that was cool for two points. Um, Affiliation House Clegane is kind of one of those like icing on the cake uh, abilities where it is added to a unit, it is factored into their costs, but it is not a heavy influencer because uh, it doesn't directly do anything itself. It specifically synergizes well with other effects. And so on its own, it needs to be kind of not taken in a vacuum, but that needs to be factored in. Now, of course, it can open up tactics, I'm not going to say exploits, but tactic strategies to an entire army, so that's powerful and it's right, but in a vacuum, it doesn't do anything, so that's where those balancing comes into play. Anyway, we ended up settling on giving him the ability to cut them down. When an enemy engaged with this unit fails a panic test, they suffer two additional wounds. This is, honestly, this was like kind of one of those like eureka moments, it fit in so well with the rest of the Lannister army that um, once we tried it, it was just one of those like, yeah, this feels good. This is useful almost universally across the board. So we just loved it. This is also the effect that um, Ramsay Snow, Sadist, 
has as well, which means you can create a nasty bit of combination by putting both those guys in the army and really running a really heavy focused Lannister panic list that can get super nasty. But this synergized really well with the Mountains men because they've got Vicious. Um, it Really, any Lannister synergized immensely well with a lot of the Lannister tactics cards, with Cersei, with any panic-inducing units that they have. This really, really just synergized well, and it still kept the aggressive nature that we wanted to feel. So, you know, when you're running Gregor and Sandor and House Clegane, you should get this feeling like, yeah, we're rampaging marauders, and we're going to go and kill you dead. That's the feeling. So if Sandor had an effect that didn't fall into that category, it might have mechanically worked, but it wouldn't have thematically worked. My only small <laughs> um, bit of kind of fluff issue that I have with Sandor now is that the Old Town's Fury ability was pretty much universally bad if you stuck him in a unit of Pyromancers because they didn't need the plus one to hit and they already had Vicious, so you'd never stick them in there. Now Sandor actually fits in pretty well with them uh, just because they naturally have Vicious, which from a fluff perspective kind of bothers me a bit that you have the Hound goes in well with a unit of guys hurling fire, which he distinctly hates. <laughs> so I kind of justified that in my head as having this visual of Sandor just screaming at the enemy as there's just fire erupting around him. And so the enemy thinks, of course, that it's just Sandor, Berserker, holy crap, this is the Hound killing us. But really, it's just fear screaming. It, he's just like scared screaming while he's attacking. <laughs> and so that visual, you know, it's funny, but you know, this is a case of just the mechanics kind of meshing really uh, a little bit weird with the, uh, um, with the fluff, but yeah, that's going to happen. It's such a minor thing that, you know, okay, just let it go. But <laughs> so anytime you're playing, that's how I like to visualize it. It's just Sandor fear screaming, but that's driving his adrenaline more forward. So that's why he's just killing more guys in that unit of pyromancers. Probably killing a couple pyromancers too. Really, to me, anytime that unit rolls a one in melee and you've got Sandor in there, that's him accidentally uh, killing a pyromancer as he's just kind of berserker and uh, having some PTSD flashbacks as he's just swinging his sword around, killing whoever is in his way. So, you know, that's, that's a fun little visual there. But all right, guys, um, we're going on nearly an hour of talking here about all these updates and changes here. But I hope this gave you some like further insight as to how that was done, how it came about, and how some of these changes went about um, being implemented into the game and why they're implemented. Obviously, the big capstone here that I want to point is that, you know... Balancing things is a two-fold street because we want everything to be playable, but at the same time, I already know that this is going to open up the entire realm of internet discussions of, oh, will they change this? When is this going to get nerfed? Or when is this going to get buffed? And I'm not looking forward to that aspect of things because, you know, eh, the internet has a habit of liking to jump to conclusions about things let's be honest here so it's a small price to pay though for actually having things balanced in the game and that's the whole intent of this is to make everything playable so you think something's really cool you can run it and it actually works on the tabletop this has always been the mandate for any miniature game i've done whether it be back from the original dark age or wrath of kings it needs to be and especially song of ice and fire it needs to be you think something's cool you should be able to run it and not feel bad about it and that's the whole point of all these buffs and everything that's happening here. And of course, moving the game to a better competitive state, which in turn trickles down to the casual state, um, hence the changes to voluntary, involuntary, and simultaneous triggers, hence the terrain things. I mean, really, the whole grandiose 
point here is to move the game into a more balanced, just better direction for casuals, competitives, for the hobbyists, for, you know, people that are just so fans of Song of Ice and Fire, and for the people that couldn't care less about the setting and just want a game of really cool mechanics. You know, finding that perfect equilibrium and harmony, that's what all this is about, and that's why we continue to do this. So that's what we have to talk about this time. We'll be getting back with some normal podcast rotations now, moving into some other topics and some list buildings, incorporating some of the new armies, the new units that are coming out, and a lot of cool, exciting stuff on the horizon there. So keep tuned and join us next time. Until then, signing out.